Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Boy, what a lot of us would give if we could protect our children from a lot of the realities of our world. Broken bodies, broken bones, broken parts, broken laws, broken treaties, broken promises, broken vows, broken marriages, broken homes, broken families, broken hearts, and broken dreams. We live in a broken world, and we all know that that's true because we all experience these things, and we lament them when they happen. We say, I never thought it was going to turn out like this. This is not the dream. This wasn't part of the plan. This wasn't supposed to be in the script, getting passed over for the team or for the job or for the promotion or getting passed over by seemingly everybody in your singleness or ending up in an unhappy or abusive marriage or ending up divorced or finding yourself in an unsatisfying career or job or having to come to terms with the pain of infertility or suffering from a chronic disease or suffering from an illness or disability. People's dreams never include these things, but real life does. And the Bible doesn't shield us from this or deny this reality. As we continue our Advent series this morning on celebrating Jesus, God's indescribable gift, looking at the life of of Joseph, we see Joseph go from being the favored son with literal dreams of exaltation to suffering rejection and then suffering slavery in Egypt and then eventually suffering imprisonment as well. Hardly the path of exaltation that his dreams seemed to anticipate. We've already considered God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional, and we considered God's gift of healing for the broken, but the truth is we suffer in our dysfunction and in our brokenness. And so we also need to see this morning God's gift of comfort for the suffering. And we're going to do that by looking at Genesis chapter 40, uh, all 23 verses. So we're skipping chapter 39. We looked at 38 last week. We're skipping 39. So just to catch us back up, after being sold as a slave by his brothers, Joseph arrives in Egypt in chapter 39, and he is bought by an officer of the Egyptian court named Potiphar. He's taken into Potiphar's home, and God is with Joseph there in Potiphar's house, and he prospers, eventually becoming the overseer of his entire household and everything he owns. But eventually... Joseph, being handsome, attracts the attention of Potiphar's wife, who repeatedly makes advances toward him to get him to sleep with her. And when he refuses, she falsely accuses him of trying to molest her, and he is thrown into prison, which is where we pick up the story now in Genesis chapter 40. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Genesis 40, and we'll read the entire chapter. If not, the passage will be displayed here on the screen. But let's stand now for the reading of God's word this morning. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore to you your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also, I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the chief of the uh, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Now, it would have been understandable at this point if we see Joseph giving in to despair. You ever have one of those days where it seems like it can't get any worse? And then it does. Joseph has been sold as a slave to Egypt, and then he's imprisoned for doing what is right, and now he is forgotten in prison. But as we look at this chapter, there are at least four lessons that we can draw from it to help us find comfort in our suffering. So I want us to look at those four lessons from Genesis chapter 40 this morning, beginning with the first, and that is remember the presence in our suffering. The presence in our suffering. Our passage ends by telling us that the chief cupbearer forgot about Joseph in prison. But despite how Joseph might have been feeling after that, and despite what we're tempted to conclude in our suffering, While the chief cupbearer forgot about Joseph in prison, God did not forget about Joseph or abandon him. Going back to chapter 39, we are told that even though he'd been sold as a slave to the Egyptians, God was with Joseph. We read this in chapter 39, verses 2 and 3, when he arrives in Egypt. And his prospering in Potiphar's house is evidence that God was with Joseph. And so as we read through chapter 39 and the events that happened with Potiphar, 
It's a little easier for us to believe that God was with Joseph when things started to look up in Potiphar's house. But what about when he is unjustly sent to prison? Had God forgotten about Joseph then? Had he forsaken Joseph then? Well, listen to what we read at the end of chapter 39 after he arrives in prison. These are the last few verses of Genesis chapter 39 just before picking it up in chapter 40. Here's what we read. Verses 21 through 23 of of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph didn't interpret or see his sufferings as a sign or indication that God had forgotten about him or that God had abandoned him. How do we know for certain that Joseph didn't interpret these events that way? Well, when his fellow prisoners are discouraged about their dreams and having no one to interpret them, Joseph asks a question. This is what he says. Do not interpretations belong to God? Do not interpretations belong to God? To God. Now, if anyone had reason to doubt divine dreams, it was Joseph. Because far from the exaltation that his dreams seemed to promise, his life has been marked chiefly by misery. And yet his question here shows that for Joseph, God is still God. He's still present. Interpretations still belong to him, and he's still at work, even in the darkness of his dungeon. Joseph does not conclude here that his suffering and hardship meant that God had left him or abandoned him or didn't care. And when we're suffering, we need to understand this as well, that your suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned or forgotten you or doesn't care, even though that might be how we feel sometimes. That's not what's happening. On the contrary, If you're a child of God by faith, he repeatedly promises you in his word that he will never, ever leave you or forsake you, whether that's in your joy or in your suffering. So you might find yourself in a dark dungeon of suffering, and in that dungeon and in the pain of your suffering, when you're tempted to believe that no one is with you, that there's no one there, and no one cares, God is with you in your suffering. God is with us every bit in our suffering, if not more, if that were possible, than in our times of joy. God is with us. And really, isn't that what we're celebrating during Advent? Emmanuel, God with us. And so God's gift of comfort to the suffering comes in part through his presence in our suffering. But it's his presence that allows us to adopt a certain posture in our suffering. And so that's the second lesson we see here, the posture in our suffering. You know, suffering often disorients us, doesn't it? Um, Our sense of the passage of time gets very distorted and we can easily lose perspective. And part of the challenge in our suffering is to maintain a godly perspective on our situation and to trust in the right posture. And it seems to me we can usually adopt one of three postures in our suffering. First, we can stew in bitterness and cynicism. 
in the face of affliction, suffering, injustice, we can grow bitter toward others and we can grow bitter toward God thinking that he got it wrong and begin to lose our faith. I recently read a quote by Tim Keller who said, worrying is fearing that God's not going to get it right. Bitterness is fearing that God got it wrong. And we can do that in our suffering and in our affliction. In light of being wronged, in light of suffering, and especially in a sense of divine delay in correcting the wrong or addressing the suffering, we begin to doubt God's goodness and his wisdom and his love for us and maybe even begin to doubt his existence. But second, we can also shrink in self-absorption and self-pity. Suffering tends to collapse us in on ourselves and we think only about our own pain. We get hurt, we get offended, we experience some kind of loss or grief and we tend to isolate and withdraw and we're, we're stuck in a focus on only our own pain. We avoid friends, we withdraw from church, we stop ministering to others. And a couple authors, Ian DeGuid and Matt Harmon, I've quoted from their work on Joseph before a couple weeks ago. Uh, and this is a fantastic commentary. I've drawn a lot of the insights through this Advent series from their work. And this is what they say about our posture and suffering. They write, our response to ongoing suffering reveals something about our hearts. It shows that at a deep heart level, I believe that the world exists to fulfill my dreams and aspirations. God himself exists to glorify and enjoy me by making my fondest dreams come true. And that is why I feel so let down and betrayed. I feel that God owes me better than this, or at least owes me an explanation of why my life has to be this way. That's what a posture of stewing in bitterness and shrinking in self-absorption tends to reveal about our hearts. But there is a third posture we can adopt in suffering, and that's serving in love and obedience. And that's what Joseph does here in prison. This is Joseph's posture. He's assigned two other prisoners who held significant posts in Pharaoh's court, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And one night they both have troubling dreams. Another instance of double dreams in Joseph's story. We're going to see them again with Pharaoh later. But more dreams now in the Joseph story. But listen in verse 7. Joseph asks a question after they're troubled by their dreams. In verse 7 he says, Why are your faces downcast today? Now think about this. Why would Joseph care if his other prisoners are unhappy after all the things that he's been going through? I mean, doesn't Joseph have every reason to stew in bitterness and cynicism and shrink in self-pity thinking about his problems after the raw deal and the injustices that he suffered? Doesn't he have every reason to do that? But he doesn't. That's not what Joseph does. He serves. And notice that he serves with complete dependence upon God still. Do not interpretations belong to God God is still the one to do this ministry. So he does so in a posture of dependence upon God, and he does so with complete obedience. Because he has to tell a really hard truth to the baker that he might prefer not to tell. I mean, the guy's only got three days left to live. 
mean, maybe you can just fudge the details a little bit on the interpretation so he can at least enjoy his last three days. But he doesn't do that. He's faithful in telling the truth. It's a hard truth of the baker. But notice also, when Joseph's in prison, somebody's situation is worse than Joseph's. Joseph's not going to die in three days. The baker is. And it's, it's so easy for us to get locked into our own prisons of stewing in bitterness and shrinking in self-pity in our suffering. And we get so focused on our own problems, our own pain, our own loss, we miss the pain of those around us. And we fail to minister to those who are struggling with things even more than we are. And I know that that's, it's hard to do. Because I get it. The, the reality of life is that you've been sinned against. You're suffering in your marriage. You've been overlooked in your grief or neglected in a crisis. Those things are true. But stewing in bitterness and shrinking in self-pity is never going to provide you any comfort in those things. And it's certainly never going to provide any kind of pathway out of that suffering. It doesn't do, it doesn't contribute to anything good. It just locks us into this cycle of our suffering. It may not be easy, but we need to keep the posture of serving in love and obedience in our suffering. If you know much about the Joseph story, you will realize that his service to these other prisoners does lead to his eventual release from prison. It starts this chain of events. So oftentimes also for us in our suffering, serving is a pathway out of that, but not all the time. But it's hard to do. It takes trusting and believing God, which are not the same thing. We can believe in God but not trust him. But to continue to serve in our suffering means that we have to believe and trust that God is good and that he's good to me even in my suffering. That he's good and good to me even when I'm suffering. But to do that, we have to believe and trust that God has a purpose in our suffering. So that's the third lesson, the purpose in our suffering. We can't help but ask the question, why would God allow this to happen to Joseph? Why would God allow Joseph to be sold as a slave to Egypt and then imprisoned on false charges? And then, why would he provide this opportunity for Joseph to interpret dreams and dangle this chance of his release only to have the chief cupbearer forget about him and slam the door back shut again? Why why do things like that happen? Why does God allow those things to happen? I, I can imagine Joseph, in the days after this interpretation, completely rejoicing in the amazing providence God has orchestrated for him to get out and then waiting with eager anticipation for the sound of those dangling dungeon keys to come down the hallway to unlock his dungeon door. And then I wonder how painfully slow it must have dawned on Joseph that he wasn't going to get out, that nothing was going to happen, that the chief cupbearer had forgotten about him, or maybe he never knew what happened. Did his dream, did his interpretations actually come true? Did something happen to the chief cupbearer? Did he just forget about it? Maybe he just doesn't know. But in any event, he has to spend another two years in this furnace of affliction. Two years. 700 more days. Can you relate to what Joseph's experience is here? Things are bad. You pray and you call out to God. 
and God seems silent. Years pass, nothing happens, and you feel forgotten and abandoned. And you just have this question, why? And in addition to that question, when is all this going to be over? When is enough enough? When is it going to stop piling on? And then, you know, your hopes are briefly lifted for a time. A possible dating relationship in light of your loneliness, a positive pregnancy test, a job opening, a chance at a promotion, only to have those dreams dashed too and the door to slam back shut. Why? Well, there's a couple things we have to keep in mind when we think about God's purpose in our suffering. When you're down to nothing, God is up to something. Just because you're down to nothing doesn't mean God's not at work. He's up to something, and he's up to something good. And so we need to also keep in mind that God is far less interested in relieving us, and he's far more interested in refining us, refining our character, working in us things like humility, complete dependence upon him for our contentment, compassion for others. And the truth is we just learn these lessons better through suffering than we do in times of joy and prosperity. Joni Erickson Tata, as some of you know who she is, she's no stranger to suffering herself, spending most of her life paralyzed after an accident when she was a child. She writes, we learn compassion, humility, and dependence and are conformed to Jesus more in suffering than in prosperity. And we may not like that, but it's true. There are certain lessons that we learn in suffering that just can't be learned in times of prosperity and joy. And our inclination is to want a life of sunshine and no rain and no storms. But some of you have heard me say before, do you know what you end up with when you have a place with sunshine only and no rain and no storms? It's a desert. There's no life there. There's certain kinds of things that happen in us that God works in us that will only happen through affliction and hardship. Billy Graham tells a story of a man during the Great Depression who lost his job, his home, and his wife. And as a Christian, he was struggling to keep his faith in the midst of this pain and this suffering. And one day he was walking in the city and he saw these men building a church. And one guy was meticulously carving this piece of triangular stone. And so he asked the man what he was doing. The man responded to him by saying, you see that hole way up there near the top of the building? I am fashioning and forming this stone down here so it will fit up there. And this man heard in this a lesson from God. And we can hear in this a lesson from God as well. God is shaping us now for glory and all the cutting and all the filing and all the chiseling it hurts and it's painful but through this process he's making us look more like Jesus depending on him more making us humble helping us to learn compassion and you know through Joseph's suffering maybe Joseph just isn't ready for exaltation yet more work needs to be done on him and on his character. Maybe his brothers aren't ready for reconciliation yet. Maybe they have more lessons to learn. But one thing that we're definitely sure about is the weather isn't ready yet 
And what I mean by that is, Pharaoh's dreams of this coming severe famine that will last for seven years are still years away. He hasn't had them yet. And so think about this. If the cupbearer had remembered Joseph earlier, he probably would have been remembering him too soon. Because Joseph would have been long gone by the time Pharaoh has his dreams and there's no one there to interpret them for him. And so there's no chance of Joseph's dreams actually getting fulfilled by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and no opportunity for Joseph to save thousands and thousands of lives from the famine, including the lives of his own family. Now, don't you imagine if God had given Joseph the option at the time and told him, okay, I can let you out right now and you can go your merry way, or you can wait two more years and you can save thousands and thousands of lives from a famine, including your own family. Don't you think Joseph would have chosen to stay in prison? But Joseph doesn't know any of that. There's no voice from heaven explaining what's going on, explaining what God's purposes are. And you know, if we were there, we wouldn't have been able to explain what was going on either. We'd have no idea what was being orchestrated in all these events. Just like today, we don't really know what God's purposes are in our suffering or the suffering in the lives of those around us. And we don't get any voice of explanation from heaven to help us interpret it. And maybe this morning, again, you're in a dungeon of suffering. You're feeling the pain and the hurt of rejection, of betrayal, of separation, of loneliness, isolation, loss of family, feeling abandoned, feeling forgotten. And again, you're just wondering why and how much longer. And I don't know. I don't have answers to those questions. But your circumstances are never simply what they appear to be. Like Joseph, you don't know what glory God might be orchestrating for you and through you in your pain. And through reading Joseph's story, God is speaking to us. And he's saying, I know it hurts, but I'm present with you. And I know the waiting seems long, but trust me, you can trust me. I have a purpose, and it's good. And it's true that Joseph doesn't get an explanation from heaven, but Joseph has his dreams. He has a revelation from God that can serve as an anchor of hope, even when it seems that there's no possible chance that these dreams will come true. And we can trust God because we have an even greater revelation. We have God's word that reveals to us his wisdom, his goodness, and his love to us. Because it reveals the sending of his son Jesus to die on a cross that demonstrates his love toward us and his wisdom and his goodness. But that revelation in the word does not only provide us with the cross assuring us of God's love, it also reveals the pattern in our suffering. So that's the fourth lesson, the pattern in our suffering. From visions of glory to rejection to the depths of the darkest pit to exaltation. You know, that's not just the arc of Joseph's story, right? It anticipates the story of the greater Joseph, Jesus, 
who was born to angels announcing his glory. But then he suffered rejection and then descended into the depths of the pit of death and into the hell of being forsaken by his father on the cross, only to then be resurrected, to ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the father and to have the name above every other name. That's the pattern for Joseph and that's the pattern for Jesus. But for all of those who are following Jesus by faith, following him as his disciples, we also have the promise of the glory that he has entered. But we also have the promise of suffering. You see, because that's, that's the pattern. First a cross, then a crown. For Jesus and for all of us who are following him. That's the pattern. The Puritan author Samuel Rutherford, lived in the 1600s, was in prison for preaching the gospel, so he knew what it was to suffer. Samuel Rutherford wrote this. You shall by faith sustain yourself and comfort yourself in the Lord and be strong in his power. For you are in the beaten and common way to heaven when you are under our Lord's crosses. You have reason to rejoice in it more than in a crown of gold. How can we do that? How can we rejoice? Because we're in the common way to heaven. That's the pattern. First a cross, then a crown. For Jesus and for all of us who are following him. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans. In chapter 8 he says, We are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see the, the order there? Do you see the pattern? Suffer with him and then glory with him. But then listen to what Paul says next in Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How incredible that glory must be. Because the suffering of the present time is really hard. And it's really weighty. And it's really painful. And you know what Paul says? Not even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us as God's children. Some of you have probably heard me say this before as well. I've said that if you're not a Christian, this life's joys are as close as you're ever going to get to heaven. There'll be a lot of them, but it's as close as you're ever going to get to heaven if you're not a believer. But if you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, you can know that the sufferings of this life are as close as you're ever going to get to hell because Jesus had secured for you a crown of glory and he has secured it through his own birth, life, death, and resurrection. And so we have seen in this Advent series that Jesus is God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional. And he's also God's gift of healing for the broken. And now we see that Jesus is God's gift of comfort for the suffering as well. As the chapter closes, we know that the wheels of Joseph's deliverance have already been set in motion. But Joseph doesn't know that. He's still in prison and he doesn't have any answers. And maybe this morning you're feeling like, I don't have any answers in my suffering either. But what this story enables us to do 
and the story, the gospel story to which this Joseph story points is that it enables us to move beyond questions that can't be answered to answers that can't be questioned. The reality of God's presence with us in our suffering, enabling us to adopt a posture of serving in our suffering, the good purposes of God in our suffering, and the pattern of our suffering, which promises glory to all of those who are looking to Jesus, God's gift of comfort for the suffering. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the encouragement of your word that meets us in a broken and painful and suffering world. That you are with us, that you can empower us to continue serving others who are also hurting and suffering by looking to you, believing that all the circumstances in our life have a good purpose and are arranged by your hand to prepare us for the glory that you have in store for us because of the pattern that is set before us through Jesus, our Savior, first a cross, then a crown. Help us to bear our crosses gracefully as we anticipate the crown of glory that Jesus has won for us. For we ask in his name, amen.